0: Normally, I like to come up here, and I like to do something a little lighthearted, especially since the kids are with us. Uh, But given the circumstances of last week and this week, I felt like God was calling me to do something else. So I'd like to start with a disclaimer. The views that I'm about to share are not representative of the views of everyone here at Spark Church Community, including the leadership. It might feel that I'm, quote-unquote, getting political, but what I'd like to do is to address something that's immoral and ethical dis- in our country upon a political backdrop. The discussion exists outside of politics as well. And it affects our relationship with God and with each other. And it's within that sphere in mind that I wish to share my thoughts. And I thank you in advance for, for listening to me. Now take a deep breath with me. Seriously. Two more. Last one. I'm tired. I'm tired of all that's happening in the world. It's disheartening news article after angry social media post, after disturbing image, after horrifying video. Sometimes I turn off the TV and I sit there silently. Sometimes I throw my phone in disgust. Sometimes I sit there and I wonder, was all of this happening before? And I just didn't know because the information wasn't really available or because I just didn't want to pay attention. It used to be that you would spend the whole day at work or at school and you'd be completely oblivious to any bad news until you arrived at home to watch the national evening news with a broadcaster like Tom Brokaw or Dan Rather who would present a well-crafted, measured story with the right diction and tone to make you realize how important it was but without feeling a loss of hope or a loss of trust in humanity. Now news comes unfiltered, 24-7. You can't escape it at work or at school or anywhere else in your normal daily life. Someone will mention it to you. Someone will send you a link or post it on their Facebook or Twitter accounts. And the opinions in the comments are just so bold. People operate at the polls nowadays. It's the worst thing you could ever, that could ever happen. It's the most disturbing thing imaginable. Or, you are the worst person ever. We need to be on high alert, on edge, fearful of what could come next, or ready to act when society begins to backslide. And just when you think that things are bad, they seem to get worse. I wish it would all stop. Just go away. Of course, I don't always feel this way. Sometimes I feel joy. Sometimes I distract myself long enough to ignore these stories for a time. Sometimes I see light at the end of the tunnel or the silver lining by the dark cloud. Sometimes I have faith in humanity, that reason and logic and compassion and empathy and even anger and anxiety can all coexist within us and help us to act for each other's best interests. Sometimes I have faith that God is still moving, and is still here with us in all of this. And sometimes I'm more like the kids in our congregation. Right now, the young ones aren't paying attention to any of the doom and gloom that I'm sharing because there are more important things in life, like food, like getting my friends' attention, like being fascinated with the simple things, like enjoying life. But I can get stuck in the other mindset, a cynical one that says things will get worse and stay worse before they get better one that says that God will leave us to our own devices in his frustration with our inability to just listen. Here at Spark, we have spent several weeks journeying together through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and inevitably, our attentions have been turned to Paul, the one-time enemy of the Christian movement, and then, arguably, its greatest proponent and evangelist. And in preparation for the sermon, I read through the book of Acts, trying to figure out what I was going to talk about. But last week, I also attended the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, listening to secular and Christian leaders illustrate actions and perspectives that help us bring out the best in others. Among them was Brian Stevenson, a lawyer, p- professor, and social justice activist. And as I was reading through Acts chapters 21, 20, 20, 21, and 22, which details Paul's return to Jerusalem, I realized that Brian Stevenson's points were being illustrated by Paul in that story. These four points are actions to take in the midst of difficult circumstances and their perspectives to hold so that you and I aren't paralyzed by anxiety or despair or uncertainty, but that so we can move forward in seeking justice. So I'd like to share these four points with you as we walk through Acts 20, 21, and 22. The first point, hold on to hope. In Acts chapter 20, Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And what lay ahead for him in Jerusalem was dangerous. Although the city of Ephesus was along the way, Paul skipped a return trip. If you recall, the last time he was there, Paul's words and actions instigated a riot. Though avoiding Ephesus made total sense, Paul recognized that the Ephesian church still needed to hear from him. So Paul and the elders of the Ephesian church met in the port city of Miletus a couple of miles down the coast from Ephesus, and Paul offered an encouraging farewell speech. In it, he not only recounted what they had accomplished, but more importantly, what they, they looked forward to what lay ahead. So in Acts 20, verses 18 to 35, he starts with, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. And he continued this by summarizing the experience including the challenges that come with preaching the good news of faith and repentance to both the Jews Jews and the Gentiles in that region. He continued on. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Despite his fears, Paul was single-minded in his goal of preaching and finishing the race that Jesus had given to him. Then Paul exhorted the elders to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and then entrusted their welfare to God and to the word of his grace, which can build them up and give them an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. After being rejected at Ephesus, Paul could have left all of it and all of them behind, metaphorically shaking the dust from his sandals. Instead, he called forth the church's leaders to point out that proclaiming the good news was now their job— And Paul was not leaving them empty-handed. They would be in the hands of God and his word of grace, which would strengthen and supply them. The goal was still attainable, no matter who was doing the work. And this was the silver lining to the cloud, the dark cloud of Paul's absence. And this is the silver lining for us too. We too can lament what we've lost or what we perceive to be losing. And God is good with expressions of sorrow and despair. Just take a look at the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Omadiah, Jonah. Okay, the whole Bible is filled with people expressing sorrow and despair. But it's all wrapped up in a hope that through their individual pain and suffering, something wonderful could happen for the generations to follow. And this is what Brian Stevenson pointed out. When he first moved to Alabama in 1985 to work as a civil rights attorney, he was invited to meet with several women who had been leaders in the 1960s civil rights movement, and among them was Rosa Parks. The women were all in their 80s, and yet they didn't just talk about what they had done. They talked about what they still had yet to do and what they were going to do. Stevenson said that you're either hopeful about what is to come or you're part of the problem. The late British politician Tony Benn said, every generation must fight the same battles again and again and again. There's no final victory, and there's no final defeat. We must never be complacent with the gains of the past generation. We can't just say, well, we won all those rights with the civil rights movement in the 60s, and then now just lament when it seems all of it's being thrown in reverse. Through the struggles we face as a community and as a society, we can join God in creating a world for our children and our children's children that looks more and more like the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom filled with the love, compassion, justice, and knowledge of God's neighbor. Yes, laments, the parent defeats. They're horrible. They're demoralizing. They're painful. Paul did this too. Yes, take the time to rest Disconnect and reflect. Paul did this too. And then get up with the hope in your heart that you will remember that as long as God's kingdom is not fully ushered into our world, his work, our work, and our joy and our struggles will continue. The second point. Get proximate. In other words, be where the people are. If it's hard to remember, just start singing. I want to be where the people are. When Paul arrived in Jerusalem, Paul was in danger. The news of his work in Greece and Asia Minor had indeed made its way to the city, and people were angry that he was ostensibly turning people away from God. Did the leaders advise Paul to stay out of sight, lay low, and then wait for the right time to take action when there was no immediate threat? No. Acts 21. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to their customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. What was Paul going to do? He was going to engage in the practices of his own faith, among others who were practicing the same faith. Doing so took him to the place where the people, needing to hear the good news of God's grace, were already gathering at the temple. And by being near these people for seven days, he was able to walk a mile in their shoes. And again, no what it was to be like them, to be in the midst of a massive crowd of people from all across the world, returning to their holy city on a holy day, to smell the sweat of these people, the blood of sacrifices, the smoke of burnt offerings, to feel the claustrophobic push of this massive crowd, and to hear the din of the people shouting in praise to God in conversation with one another, to feel the unity of the crowd as they all gathered together for one purpose, to worship. After this experience, Paul would be able to relate to them in ways that they could understand. Brian Stevenson advocates for being in proximity, proximity to those you are trying to serve, to, quote, get closer to the issues we are trying to address and the people we are trying to empower. Most of us are taught to stay away from such problems, Stevenson said, but there is power in proximity. By being with the people we're trying to serve, we will understand how nuanced their lives really are, and then we will feel compassion for them. This isn't some just random homeless man. He has a name, he has a life, he has a history, and he has a future. This is not just some run-of-the-mill coworker. She has a name, she has a life, she has a history, and she has a future. Now the question is, where are the people we're trying to serve? It might require a road trip a boat ride, or a plane fight to be in proximity to them. It might require a huge sacrifice of time, talent, and money in order to be among them. However, serving people may not require a long-term mission overseas. They might be all around us right now. We might see them every day on our way to work or at work itself. We might see them in our children's schools, in our grocery stores, at our coffee shops, in our gyms, or on our sidewalks. Physically, we are near them. But their experience may be completely foreign to us. To understand the person serving us behind the counter, or the coworker in the next cubicle, or the neighbor down the street, proximity may require us to engage with them and experience life through their eyes. And that's not easy. The third point choose to do uncomfortable things. Paul has placed himself among the people he is trying to serve. The problem is the people he's trying to serve were also among his most hostile critics. Acts 21, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized them, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down the road. When the riders saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound in two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. At the truth, because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, Get rid of him! By placing himself among the people he was meant to serve, Paul answered the crossfire. He put himself in danger. Now, we may never face life and death situations, but we may have to deal with some painful realizations, such as we too are broken. This is hard to hear, but honestly, there really isn't that much that separates us from our adversaries. It seems insulting to consider that we have much in common with a white supremacist or a murderer or a rapist or a child molester or a human trafficker or anyone else that we, whose behavior we find repugnant. But we do have a lot in common with them, including the same exact ability to fall and the need for a Savior. And until we recognize that but for the grace of God, we could be them, we can't have true compassion for our adversaries. And we won't recognize that God can redeem anyone, anyone, even them. But admitting this to ourselves is so difficult. And when your adversary shows you such anger and hatred, it's really hard not to respond in kind. But Brian Stevenson says, quote, to make a conscious decision to be willing to do uncomfortable things. Stevenson tells the story of a man sentenced to death for murder and the anguish that he experienced in trying and failing to receive a next day of execution for this man. After calling the man to tell him the news an hour before the execution was to take place, Stephen said he put down the phone and he cried. And he said to himself, I can't do this anymore. This is just too hard. He asked himself, what is it about us that we want to kill all the broken people? He asked himself why he chose to do this when it was just so emotionally taxing. And the outcomes of the cases were rarely in their favor. But he realized this. I do what I do because I'm broken too. And there's a power in that brokenness. Our final point. Change the narrative. At the temple in Jerusalem, Paul had been verbally attacked, then physically attacked, and then placed under arrest by the soldiers. The commander, however, permitted Paul to speak to the angry crowd. And Paul said, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Ar- to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So given this opportunity to defend himself, Paul told his critics a narrative about himself that was different than the one they held about him. Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of, C- of Cilis- Cilicia, Cilicia. But brought up in this city, Jerusalem, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, Christianity, to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. Paul then tells the crowd of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus and how it had left him blind. He continues, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, brother Saul, receive your sight.' And at that moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of your ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You'll be his witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What was Paul's counter-narrative to the stories that were being told about him? I am one of you. I'm Jewish, raised in the city, trained by a respected rabbi in Jewish law, as committed to serving God as any one of you. And I still am. I was healed by a man who is also one of you and who said that this path that I am now, it's the one that the God of all of our ancestors, of our forefathers, has chosen for me and he's chosen for all of us too. I haven't turned against God. I'm still fully committed to him, but he's asking us to follow him in a new way. There are parallels throughout history of people that address their own groups and try to clarify the narratives with them. In 1845, there was a man promoting the abolition of slavery. And because of his criticism of pro slavery Christian leaders, it was believed that this man was against Christianity. In the appendix of his autobiography, the man set about changing the narrative.
1: What I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of each week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation. He who sells my sister for purposes of prostitution stands forth as the pious advocate of purity. He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me.
0: I'm glad to say that in the last 170 years, we've become much better at recognizing such massive hypocrisy within our our ranks. But what I'm not as certain about is whether we as the American church are free from the illness that was named six six decades ago by another man, who, like Frederick Douglass, criticized his Christian brothers and sisters for their inaction, and who, like Douglass, was dismissed by his fellow Christians as a troublemaker. This is an actual auto-recording of him.
2: I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must, must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you on the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises a Negro to wait for a more convenient season. shall understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that white moderates would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Like a ball that can never be cured, so long as it is covered up, but must be open with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light, injustice must be exposed with all the tension its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the head of national opinion before it can be cured.
0: For both Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, these moral issues extended well beyond the narratives in which they were framed. Slavery was an economic issue. Jim Crow was a law enforcement issue. True. And that was what prevented good people of faith from fully engaging with the immor- immorality of both systems. The same narrative pattern exists now. It existed in 1845 and in 1963 and it exists now. And not just with black Americans and with white moderates, but with people of all ethnicities, faiths and perspectives and with the church. Brian Stevenson says, quote, "We need to change the narratives that sustain and fuel unjust practices and policies. We within the church need to understand these narratives at their origins and be willing to discuss painful histories." And our country is filled with stories of genocide, slavery, and oppression that have been dressed with the facades of manifest destiny, law and order, and economic migration. We might not agree with every narrative, but at the very least, we need to hear them out. As rhetoric professor John Kerr Smith offered, if you can't argue the other side, you're not allowed to hold the opinion. Every generation must fight the same battles again and again and again. But are we standing on the sidelines, letting the marginalized fight our battles for us? This is my concern for us, the church. Our scripture and our theology speak of caring not for the worries and anxieties of this world, in favor of looking to the next world. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. For we know that if the tenth is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For... In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and neither where thieves do not break in and steal. Such a perspective allows us to remain above the fray, where our life and our world look beautiful, peaceful, and ordered. These are all true. And these verses are all beautiful. But with them, we can choose not to engage in the worldly pursuits. and Instead, retreat to focus solely on what makes us calm and pacific. We don't need to condescend to such base instincts and feelings. We just keep those inflammatory issues at arm's length and further. We can, just take, we can take care of just our family and just our job and just our portion of the world and leave the rest to God. We can feel good about ourselves in this position, seek happiness, and live in peace and harmony with our neighbor and our creation. The thing is, this is not the world we live in. From 100,000 feet above, this is how it seems. But when you get to ground level, it gets messy, disordered, chaotic. It is filled with anger, pain, sadness, and disunity with our neighbor and with creation. When you get up close to the up and close and personal, the world is ugly. Including our own little portion of the world that we've tried to control, it's just as chaotic as the rest. And that is where God chooses to be. Not just 100,000 feet up, but in the midst of the mess. He is up close and personal all the way from the very beginning of his and our story in Genesis all the way to the very end of the story in Revelation. And right in the center of all of it is Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God condescends to us. Literally, he descends to be with us. He comes down to us, to get proximate to us, to listen to our stories, and to tell his own to us. He encounters the uncomfortable chaos that is the human experience, which encompasses economics, natural science, philosophy, law, and yes, even politics. And there he points us to what we are capable of being, to what we were made to be. God has gotten involved in human affairs from the moment he created humanity. And it hasn't changed one bit since the very beginning. God gets his hands dirty in ways that his church is sometimes afraid to get into. And we can't draw a line and say, this is where my faith ends. God, you can get evolved over there, but I won't. But I don't want to get my hands dirty either. I'm tired of the complications, the mess, and the mire. I'm broken. And I know you're tired and broken too, but we have work to do. The issues that our society is engaged in are, for some of us, voluntary because they don't affect us personally. But for others among us, addressing these issues is mandatory. Not because we have been called by God to engage so directly, but because we experience inequality when we simply walk out our door. We can try to keep the different aspects of our lives separate, But politics imposes itself into our lives. We wear our differences on your skin. We don't have a choice. But if whatever hurts my brother hurts me, then I don't have a choice either.
2: Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly.
0: Individually, collectively, let's take a deep breath. Seriously, do it with me right now. Let's take time to lament, to talk with God, to discern what exactly he wants from each of us individually and all of us collectively. And then it's time to get proximate to people, to change narratives for people, to do what makes us uncomfortable, and to find and hold on to hope because it is what will make the difference for us, for our neighbors, for our world, for those who will be following in our footsteps. Us following in Jesus' footsteps is a good place to start. And as I call up Miss Wilna and Pastor Tina and Miss Stacy and getting one more person. Oh, Miss Pamela, I'm sorry. As I call these folks up, we're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps right now. We, as Jesus did, are going to pray for God's intercession in the lives of those around us. Now, whether you agreed with the content of my message or not. We can all agree that we need God to be present and active and loving right here and right now. With every request that we make together to the Lord, please respond by saying, Lord, hear our prayer. It's right now. For the courage to truly embrace the suffering of others and to promote reconciliation and healing, we pray to the Lord.
2: That healing may be promoted by those who are bold enough to speak truth to poverty, community unrest, and homelessness, we pray to the Lord. For an increase of civil dialogue among city and community leaders so that the doors of community of reconciliation will
0: break open we pray to the lord for mercy reconciliation and hope for those who live on the edges of society and who don't recognize peace we pray to the lord lord hear our prayer for those who believe that peace and healing in our communities is unattainable that they may be inspired by the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer.
2: That those who make decisions for the common good may use the gift of wisdom to shape a more just and peaceful nation, we pray to the Lord. For the courage to have difficult conversations about racism, and for a better appreciation of how our words and actions, and even our silence, can impact our communities, we pray to the Lord.
0: That each individual member of this church community, and our visitors and guests today, may find within themselves the wisdom and love to confront racial tension in our communities. We pray to the Lord. May the Lord receive our communal offering of prayer and give us the strength, the wisdom, and the courage to do our part in bringing all this to pass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Lord God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all the people gathered here today. Help us to have the conversations we need to have with one another, to be close to one another, to be proximate to one another. To do more than just say, how are you? How are you doing? But actually to know how they are and to be able to interact and intercede and bless them as we need to and as they need us to do. Help us to be constantly looking for your work in the world and constantly be asking how you want to take part in it. And give us courage and give us hope that no matter what we might face as individuals, as a community, as a country, as a world, you can get us through it. Thank you, God, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.